You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Alyssa, glad to have you on the team. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to do what we do every week and open up the Bible and learn from it and hear what God has to say to us. And so uh, I want to invite you to uh, open up to Hebrews chapter 10. And if you haven't met me yet, good morning. My name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here, like Adam just said. And uh, today is a little unique. Typically, uh, we, we go through books of the Bible. We have been going through the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, but today is Vision Sunday. And the reason we're doing Vision Sunday is because at the beginning of the year, we want to kind of recapture who we are. And it's, it, the timing's actually been perfect because you, you may know this, you may not, but we're buying a building, uh, this building, and God willing, I mean, you know, nothing's ever fully done until it's done, but God willing, we, we hope to close on this building this week. So it's, it's looking like this is the last time you'll ever enter in through these doors as, uh, with RCC as a renter. And the next time you come in, this will be the, the home of our church. Um, so let's just give God a hand that like, this is actually, I feel like it's going to happen. And obviously with that come a ton of blessings and associated with that, a lot of change. We're going to be doing renovations on this space, on the creating offices on the third floor, doing a coffee shop on the first floor, uh, second floor. We're going to make this a little bit more of a permanent setup. Uh, so a lot of things are about to change, but some things are not changing. Who we are, what Redemption City Church is all about will always re remain essentially the same. I, um, I play guitar poorly, um, like just enough to like be at a campfire or to impress a girl in college. Uh, it works for my wife, so. Uh, and you know, I can play the basic chords. And whenever I go downstairs in my basement to grab my guitar and play my guitar, uh, it it sounds horrendous. Like I, ha I have to grab my tuner to make sure the strings are all playing the right note, or else it sounds like my guitar is going in a hundred different directions. Well, this morning, what we're doing as a church is we're grabbing our tuner, the Word of God, and recalibrating ourselves to what He says we're supposed to sound like. Like, what is God's vision for this church? Because that's all that matters, right? And oftentimes, what happens is, is we each come to a church with our own sound, with our own desires, our own assumptions, our own needs, and what happens is, is you bring all these different sounds into one room and it sounds like nails on a chalkboard. Everyone's upset. And it's only when you get those strings together, tuned to the same device, do you then get this beautiful melody. And so if you're a member of our church, meaning you've been through the membership process and affirmed by the elders and the other members, what we're doing today is tuning ourselves together with God's Word so our church can make a unified symphony of God's glory so that when the world hears it, they're attracted and brought in. And so that's why we're going to ask each member of our church during the service to renew your covenant commitment to our church by re-signing your church covenant. And you'll see your church covenant is under your chair. You'll have the, uh, the details of what it means to be a member on uh, the sheets. And then there's a uh, sheet on the top where you can re-sign and recommit to the church. And uh, if you're not a member of RCC, I don't want you to be thinking, oh, dang it, I came to the wrong Sunday. No, no, this is a great Sunday, even if you're not a Christian, to be here. Because you're going to get to see what God wants from His church. You probably have a lot of assumptions, a lot of history about church. Maybe you have a bad taste in your mouth. Well, today you get to see what God says about His church. And you get to see what RCC is all about. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Uh, if you have a Bible, I hope you do. You can follow along with me. Hebrews 10, 19. It'll also be on the screen. And let's read what God has for His church. Here's the word of the Lord. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Lord Jesus, uh, we need your help as we dive into this text and try to understand it. All these people in this room, including myself, come from different backgrounds, have different concerns. But Lord, we don't want to make our own sound. We want to be recalibrated to your word. So show us what that looks like today and build a beautiful church, the church that you intended out of RCC. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but growing up, uh, when I ate lunch at the cafeteria, especially when I was a freshman in high school, there was always the cool table. You, you ever notice the cool table? I never happened to be the one sitting at it, but I always noticed it. Or there may have been uh, like a special club that you wanted to be a part of, but you weren't. But you like so badly wanted to. There are all kinds of groups that human beings have longed to be a part of to give them a sense of being special or cool or unique. All of us can imagine that scene, you know, like where the loser goes to the cool kid's table and the cool kids look at him or her and say, like, what are you doing here? Like, you don't belong here. And then all my worst nightmares come true. <laughs> See, there's, a, there's this fear in the human heart of being rejected. That's why at a middle school dance, everyone's standing on the edges next to the punch. No one wants to be the guy or the girl who dances first, who's rejected. There's this innate desire in us to be accepted. And not just accepted, but brought in into something elite, something cool, something special. Well, here in this text in Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians that at the time don't feel very special, are very unique, are very cool. In fact, this is a run-down church. They're tired from the relentless hardship and the persecution and the ostracism associated with the Christian life. See, originally, when they had professed faith in Christ, they were excited to rally together, to follow Jesus, to lock arms to make Jesus known in their city. But over time, it got really hard. They found out that Christianity is a lot less like lying in a hammock and more like holding a plank. And so what happened is some in this church fell away. They went back to their old lives. Many were formerly Jewish, so they returned to Judaism. And many of these members who were originally so committed to the church and so committed to Jesus had checked out. They were tired and they were done. And so what happens is, is seeing this struggle of these people in this church, the author of Hebrews writes this letter to encourage this church, to tell them that now in Christ, you have been invited to sit down at the coolest table. You have been accepted into fellowship in the most exclusive of clubs, into an intimate relationship with the Trinity. The author of Hebrews begins with this beautiful picture of the access those of us who have been saved by Christ now have to the living God. And then from that, he turns to make the, these four commands out, flowing out of this beautiful gospel truth of the access we now have. He tells us how we should live in light of this gospel. And so as we turn to the text, notice with me the tone of the writer. He says at the beginning, Therefore, brothers... He doesn't address them as readers. He doesn't address them as hearers. The author writes, therefore, brothers. He is a fellow brother speaking to his brothers and sisters like a family. And so that's how I want you to hear me this morning. When Adam and I come up and preach, we don't come for you just to listen to us. We come as fellow brothers speaking to feed our brothers and sisters in the family of God. To build you up. And so, family, just here's your brother sharing with you what God's Word says together. 
And the first thing I want us to see, as I mentioned just a second ago, is the central gospel truth that the author communicates, and then we'll look at the four commands that flow out of those, that central gospel truth. And that central gospel truth is that Christ gives us unprecedented access to God. In 19 to 21, Christ gives us unprecedented access to God. But read verse 19 to 21 again with me. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Now, it's hard for us as 21st century Christians, so distant from the temple, to truly understand just how weighty this statement is. These verses would have been staggering to the original audience. You see, the Israelites knew about the Holy of Holies. They knew about this innermost room in the tabernacle where God's presence would dwell. And this room was separated from the rest of the temple by a curtain or veil that was three times taller than a giraffe. And it was so thick that if two horses pulled it apart, they wouldn't be able to. This veil, this curtain, was a screen or a divider that shielded man from a holy God. And only one man, the high priest of Israel, could enter into this room one day a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he would make a, a sacrifice or a blood offering for the sins of himself and the sins of the people of Israel. And the high priest, he couldn't just like stroll in with the sandals on. He had to follow a meticulous washing ritual and clothing requirements and come with specific sacrifices. And if he came in incorrect, he would drop dead before a holy God. In fact, uh, the people of Israel would, would tie a rope around the high priest when he entered into the Holy of Holies. And they would put bells on his rope in case he would drop dead in the presence of God. And so that they wouldn't have to go in and fetch him. They could just drag him out of the room with the rope. What the author is saying here in this passage is that the privilege, brothers and sisters, we have in Christ is staggering. The kind of access to God reserved for one day of year for one holy man is now given to us unfettered, unhindered, unlimited. And the text tells us we don't have to go into the presence of God with fear anymore, afraid of death or being incorrect. We don't have to be sheepish. We can go in with, as the text says, confidence. Literally, we can go boldly. And this is not because of our virtue, but because of the grace God has offered us in Christ Jesus. You see, our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, were able to commune with God in Eden. But as soon as they sinned, they were fearful to be in the presence of God. To the point that when they sinned, they hid themselves from God. And what Jesus has done on our behalf is He has returned us to the garden. Where we can then commune with God whenever we please. You know, there have been times where I've been at a big event or a concert or a conference. And I've been invited to go back into the green room. You know, the green room is where the speakers and the, the talent sits and there's tons of food and stuff. But I didn't have a pass. And my friends still invited me, so, you know, I would just tag along with him. Or, I, you know, in my BC, before Christ days, I would sneak in past security. <laughs> and whenever I would sneak into the green room without the pass, I would just act like I belong and try not to make any sudden movements. Like, I just don't want anyone to ask me, where's your pass? And, you know, I won't grab any of the food. Maybe I'll grab a water as I leave. I'm scared. But then, there's been other times that I've been in the green room and I had to pass. And man, I'm back there like a king. Bring on the sandwiches, bring on the queso, coconut water, what is that? Oh, I'll try it. Like, I'll have anything. You guys have to-go bags? Because I'm taking some stuff with me. It's because I have the all-access pass. And so I'm walking around back there with boldness because I'm supposed to be there. And that's a little bit of the picture we have of this text. All of us have been given the all-access pass to God. 
Why do we have it? Because we, we've been given to it by the king. And how did he accomplish this for us? We see it here in this text that it was through his flesh, through Christ's flesh. Christ's body was ripped apart so that we could have this full access pass. He, as the great high priest, offered the one time, once for all sacrifice that was good. It was finished. It was final. He's not like the other priests who would have to go back year after year, keep making sacrifices for the sins of man. After doing it one time, Christ sat down. He rested because he provided the once for all sacrifice so that we could be put in the presence of God. And Mark talks about this in his gospel. We saw this two years ago as we went through the gospel of Mark in Mark chapter 15. The moment Jesus died, he said, it is finished. The curtain, tall as three giraffes and thicker than uh, anything we could rip, was ripped from top to bottom, symbolizing the truth that we now have unfettered access to the Father through the body and blood of Christ who was ripped on our behalf. And... The author of Hebrews tells us that this is a new and living way. This is not stale. It's not old. It's a new covenant. This is what Christ has done for us. And that's why he is our great high priest that's over the house of God. This doesn't have to be replicated anymore. His work is final. And we need to see, friends, how radical this is for us. And how staggering it would have been for the Israelites when they hear this. That they have now, they have unhindered access to the Holy of Holies. You know, one of the questions I've wrestled through this week as I've read this text, and I pray you'll wrestle with this question too, is could the depth of our prayer life be measured by how well we understand this text? If we fail to approach God... Could it be that we actually don't believe what we're reading here in Hebrews 10? The author is telling us that we should have confidence. He isn't saying you should seek confidence to approach God. You have it. Even if your feelings don't feel it, it's still there. So let's understand our position, friends. Now, in, in light of our position, in light of our access to God, let's look at the four commands the text gives on how we should then live as a church based on this access we've been given. And what you need to see is that you don't obey these four commands for access to God. You obey these four commands because you have access to God. Yeah, Muhammad, Krishna, Buddha, Wall Street... All of them will tell you the pressure is on. You need to earn your full access. Jesus says, there's no more pressure. Here's your access if you come through me. We work from access, not for access. And in light of that, we live in confidence. You already have the pass. Jesus did all the hard work for you. And the other thing I want to notice before we look at these commands is that this is a community project. All four of these commands, community project. If you notice, each of the commands starts with the phrase, let us. Do you notice that in the text? He doesn't, I just find this interesting. The author, you would think, would say, hey, you guys, individually, you, uh, Josh, you, Amy, you, Tim, you draw near to God. No, 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 he doesn't say that. He says, let us draw near to God. See, that's because you don't do the Christian life alone. He's telling us that following Jesus is an us activity. There are commands here that we obey with other people, not just by ourselves. Now, that's not to say we don't do them apart as well. But here, the focus on this passage is that we do them together in the life of the church. Together, we do these commands. As a family, we spur one another to draw near to God. As a family, we encourage one another to hold fast to our confession. As a family, we love one another. This is not something we do individually. And some of these commands, you can't even if you wanted to. Like, they require other people you're committed to. You cannot obey, obey, let us commands without an us. Who's your us? It's your local church. So four collective commands are corporate commands that each of us is called to do together. 
The first of these, verse 22. And I, I uh, made them specific to our church. Obviously, this author is writing to this church uh, here, but I think we can apply them to RCC. So, number one, four commands for Redemption City Church. Let us draw near to our God. Based on this access, let us draw near to our God. Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So, essentially what he's saying is, since we have been granted access, we should want to be in the room. We should want to be communing with God. And here, we should do so with full assurance of faith and a pure conscience. The picture I have here is uh, one of a child who has confidence to be at places that other people wouldn't feel comfortable being because they're with their mom or dad. I thought about this a few weeks ago during our service. During the welcome, where Pastor Adam Wilson was up here, Sayla Wilson, Adam's daughter, while Adam was doing the welcome, ran up onto the stage, stood next to him, smiling ear to ear, hugging on him, grabbing his leg, holding his hand. And she felt, I don't know if you noticed if you are here, she felt no guilt in her conscience about being up here. And whether she should have been up here or not. Now, for many of you in this room, it would be extremely awkward for you to come up here and grab Pastor Adam Wilson's leg while he was doing the welcome and just chill. But it's not awkward for her. Why? Because she has access. She's his child. This is a little bit of the picture that we should have, friends. We come to God without a hinge in our, hitch in our conscience because we are his child. We're not just there because we can be. We're there because he wants us there next to him. And we do this together. This is what we're doing right now. We're drawing near to Him together. We're sitting by uh, our Father, holding His hand as He teaches us about Himself. So, friends, let's draw near to God because we have a heart that's been cleansed by the work of Christ. Our consciences no longer condemn us. Instead, we can approach Him with boldness. And then secondly, the author commands us, let us together hold fast to our confession. Secondly. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We're called here to hold firm to our confession of our faith. And what is the confession of the faith? It's namely the gospel. It's the word of God. We hold to it. And this is the same confession that these former brothers and sisters in the faith were holding on to 2,000 years ago. It never changed, and we all just take turns taking the baton and holding tightly to it. And the author says, hold fast to this confession. Because the church he's writing to has been tempted to shrink back into their old life. Wanting to go back to the old covenant, to the laws. And the author's saying, hold firm to Christ. This old way is so inferior. Christ is superior to the old covenant. Hold fast to Him. Have you, ever, have you ever had a time in your life where you had to hold on to something for dear life you would not let go? Oftentimes when I bring my youngest one-year-old son, Judah, around people, which is not often because he grew up in a COVID world, but whenever he is around people, he's freaked out, not used to other human beings, not mom and dad. And I'll try and put him down around other people, and he will hold on to my neck with a vice grip. I just can't, he will not let go of me. He does not want to be away from dad. This is the image the author has, a vice grip on our confession. Refusing to let go of the gospel, refusing to let go of the word. And we see here again that this is a group activity, not an individualistic one, not a singular one. Let us hold fast to the confession. We are to encourage one another in this hope that we have, to hold on, to not falter, to not waver, to not shrink back. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic on community, on church, called Life Together, he says it like this. The Christ in their own hearts is weaker than the Christ in the word of other Christians. The Christ in their own hearts is weaker than the Christ in the word of other Christians. We need brothers and sisters to encourage us with the truth. I don't know what it is, but for some reason, when I tell myself, Adam, God loves you, it pales in comparison when you come up to me and say, Adam, God loves you. 
We need people to help us hold fast to the truth. And this is why we do catechisms and confessions during our service like we just did a few moments ago. We are holding fast to the confession of our faith together. We're literally saying it out loud. This is why we sing rich scriptural songs. We want to celebrate and sing the confession together. It's why we do gospel communities and why we do stoop groups. Because we want to hold each other to help each other hold fast to the faith. Especially when, as what so happens in life, we're tempted to waver. And this is why we have church membership. Church membership is literally our church saying, hey, we see evidence of the gospel in your life. We believe you're a Christian by everything that we see. So, yeah, we're going to hold fast together. And this is what a church covenant is. That's why we, we, we sign them together as members. You'll notice, the, like I said earlier, there's one under your chair. Church membership and church covenants aren't words in the Bible, but we have found them helpful tools to, to allow us to spell out what our confession is. And to make clear our commitments to one another so that we can encourage one another and keep each other accountable to hold fast to this confession. So, firstly, we draw near to our God together. We hold fast to our confession together. Thirdly, the author of Hebrews says, let us love our community together. Verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the author says here, consider how to love one another. Consider means devote concentrated thought. God wants you to innovate and to brainstorm ways to stir up your brothers and sisters to love and good works in your church. I love that phrase too, stir up one another. It literally means to incite, incite one another, provoke one another to love and good deeds. The image here is someone starting up a riot, which sadly we've seen many of the past year. Here the author is saying, I want you to start a riot of love and good works at your church. Like go crazy, innovating new ways to help your brothers and sisters in the faith. We see clearly in this text that we are not just saved for a vertical relationship with God. We are also saved for a horizontal relationship to brothers and sisters. You see, the New Testament has no category for a me and Jesus type of Christianity. There's no such thing in the New Testament as a Christian that's not a committed member of a church family. How do you obey this without church family? Now, notice the writer here says, when you come to the gathering, and he uses the Greek word episynagogue. So literally he's talking about the assembly of, of the believers together, like what we're doing right now. He's not just talking about when we meet house to house or grab coffee at the coffee shop. He is saying, come intentionally, ready to stir one another, one another up to love and good works, thinking how you can build them up and encourage them when you gather on the Lord's Day. Now, obviously, just because he has in mind the assembly of believers on Sunday, like what we're doing right now, I don't think that means you can't have this in mind when you gather with other Christians in smaller groups, like in your gospel community or when you grab coffee. I think he's obviously still staying that. I think we should, when we go to gospel community, when we do meet with another believer in the church, we should think, how can I provoke this brother and sister to love and good deeds? How can I, my faith strengthen their faith? But he is primarily saying here, when you come to this gathering, with your brothers and sisters in the faith, you are not to come as a passive observer. You are to come as an active participant in what God is doing. So in light of this, I want to present some implications or questions I want us to think through as we come to this gathering weekly. The church is not a country club where you come to be served and waited on hand and foot. And so is your mindset when you come to this gathering, how can I be benefited or how can I benefit my brothers and sisters in the faith? And it doesn't mean you won't be benefited. We pray you will be. But what's our mentality? What are we coming to receive or to give? If you're coming to the gathering because you like the preaching or because you like the music, then you are coming as a consumer. 
and not the kind of Christian that this text is talking about. I think this text also has some real implications for church hoppers. People go from church to church, don't commit, don't become a member. If you're a church hopper, you're not really committed to a church family. You just come for half an hour on most Sundays, or an hour and a half on most Sundays. That means that you will never know your fellow Christians enough to know how to encourage them and provoke them to love and good deeds. And this is why we take membership to be so meaningful, because to do this text, you have to be in a context where you've covenanted yourself to other brothers and sisters who will hold you accountable to this. And also elders who will give an account of how you do this and encourage you and teach you and help you to live a life of love in the context of a local church. And to be honest with you, just to be completely frank, I didn't have this type of church community for the first few years of my Christian life. And I missed out. I made a lot of really bad decisions. I dishonored God. And I preach on this with conviction, not just because it's what the text says, but because I want to spare you from those heartaches that I experienced. And so in light of this command, I want to, I want to present just nine practical ways that you can come to this gathering with this mentality of stirring one another up to love and good deeds. And this is for all who come to the gathering. So if you're a kid and you're listening, you can do this too. So son, you better listen up. Number one, come to the gathering with the mindset of, am I ready to stir up and encourage? Who today can I love and encourage when I walk through these doors? You know, one Sunday morning, my wife told me that she was, um, she was really struggling. She was tired, she had a rough day, she didn't feel well, and she's taking care of two kids and trying to bring them to the gathering. And so that Sunday, she just powered through and brought our kids and when she got here, she ran into one of our members, uh, a brother named Ben Larson. And she asked Ben, Ben, how you doing? You know, like barely getting the words out. And Ben responded, it is so good to be here. And my wife was like, it is so good to be here. <laughs> like even your greeting can stir one another up to love and good deeds. Secondly, pray for the gathering on your drive or on your walk to the building. Take those 10 or 15 minutes that you take to get here to gather with the Lord's people and pray for all elements of the service. Pray for Megan as she leads us in song. Pray for the congregation as we sing together. Pray for me as I preach. Pray for the child care workers. Actually, pray for them twice. Pray for everything that's going on. And use those 10 or 15 minutes to ask for the Lord's help. And what a great model for your children. They, they see mom and dad really care what happens with the Lord's people when they're gathered. Thirdly, come early and stay late. Come early, stay late. When I go to a Ravens game, I never show up late. I show up an hour early with purple on my face. We don't go to movies late. We don't go to concerts late. But we come to the gathering of the church and we come late. So I want to encourage you to come early and stay late. So you, that, The reason is so you have more time to encourage the body to live out this text. So you can have more conversations. Number four, seek out people to greet that you do not yet know. If somebody's standing by themselves, if someone's sitting by themselves, sit with them. Invite them to sit with you. Try each week to get to know somebody you do not know yet. I know this is unique in a, post, in a COVID world, but we can still creatively greet people that we do not know. Fifthly, seek out a friend to give them a word of encouragement or pull them aside to pray for them for their upcoming week. How awesome would it be if each week you came to the gathering, there was somebody to offer an encouraging word to you? There was somebody there to say, can I pray for you? Tell me what's going on. That's the kind of environment God envisions for His people. But that only happens if his people do it. Seek out a friend and encourage them or pray for them. Number six, do acts of service even when you aren't scheduled to serve. And when you are scheduled to serve, show up and serve with a smile as if you're serving the Lord. Because you are. These are your brothers and sisters in the faith. This is your home. 
So display your love for your brothers and sisters by and for God by picking up the trash, sanitizing the kids' areas, decorating the space. We love one another by serving each other here. Number seven, find a family that has a lot of small children and sit with them and help them. Maybe even take a crying child so that the parents can have can continue to worship unhindered. Obviously, I know that's unique in COVID and we have to be careful, but just help one another. Make their problems your problems. Number eight, sing. <laughs> sing. It's a really easy one. We are singing the truths of the gospel. We should be belting these beautiful promises. Too often, we have this mentality that singing is a me and Jesus activity. Well, Jesus knows my heart, so I don't really need to be that low. But Paul tells us in his epistles that we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs so that we will build each other up. Your singing is building your brothers and sisters up. So when we sing, we are actually preaching to one another. So use your body, lift your hands. When you sing, ask yourself, how can I sing in a way that builds up the body? Number nine, be an active listener to the preacher. Preaching is not a performance. It's not uh, just me doing a canned uh, a speaking oratory event. This is a two-party event. The congregation has a direct impact on the sermon. So if you're disengaged, if you're getting up a lot, or even if you just look angry, it affects the sermon. And if you're locked in, if you're amening, saying, come on, pastor, that has a direct impact on the quality of the preaching and on how it's received. I don't know what it is, but when I'm hearing like a congregation like, come on, pastor, I'm like, yeah! <laughs> Try and find a way to say amen. Or even just, just baby steps, nod your head. You just did it. Great job. You don't have to be quiet during the service. In fact, you're supposed to be talking. Because we're supposed to build each other up. Those are just nine. I think you, we can obviously think of many more. I would encourage you, as you gather in gospel community this week or in stoop group this week, think through practical ways you can do this to love one another, to stir up one another to good deeds in the gathering. And even think of practical ways you can do this amidst your gospel community. And I'll just end this point with this. Sunday morning is not just about what I do or what other Pastor Adam does, or what Megan does, or what the band does, or what David Whistle does. What you do on Sunday morning has real eternal consequences. And so please see this gathering as such and your participation in it. Four commands. Number one is to let us run near God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Number three is let us love our community. Final command from the gospel that we have access to God. Fourthly is let us commit to our gathering. Let's commit to our gathering. I'm going to read 24 and 25 again because it's so needed in this age. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. This verse destroys the saying, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. It obliterates it. Now, obviously, we know attending a service, going to church, does not justify you before God. Not save you in any way. But what the author is saying is that if you have forsaken or made it a habit of forsaking the assembly together, what he is saying is that you are showing that you should have no confidence that you are actually a part of the people of God. The New Testament has no category of Jesus and I have our own thing going on. I don't need anyone else. It would sound as strange to the apostles saying something like that as it would for me to tell you that I'm a meat-eating vegetarian. That's how strange a me and Jesus Christianity would seem to the early church. Now, we, we say all the time around here that church is not an event, it's not a service, it's a people doing life together. What we're doing right now is obviously not the totality of what our church is. We are a family on mission together.
But we need to see the central importance of the assembly, of our gathering. There's even a missional focus to it. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when he's writing instructions to the Corinthian church about their gathering, he says, what could happen when you gather is that an unbeliever comes into the room, sees your gathering, and would fall on his face and worship God and say, God is truly among you. John Wesley said, if you catch on fire, people will come from miles to watch you burn. If a church catches fire for the glory of God, unbelievers will come literally from miles to see the glory of Jesus Christ. So this is not a small thing we do. It is a central thing, brothers and sisters, coming together. Now, in this text, it's easy to miss what's happening and to see this as some sort of encouragement. Like, oh, please, guys, go to church. You should go to church. That's not what's happening here. This is an exhortation. This is a command, not an encouragement. It's also a warning. The main point here is that if you have made it a habit of forsaking the gathering, you have not only walked away from God's people, you have walked away from God Himself. I'm not going to unpack the next few verses, but you have to hear the continuation of the author's argument. He starts the next verse, verse 26, right after this, with the word for. Meaning he's, he's connecting what he just said to what he's about to say in verse 26. And he, he's talking about those who abandon the assembly of God's people, who neglect these four commands of us doing this together. He says, verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately, deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved for, by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This text is not a slogan for bring your friend to church day. It's a warning to people who claim to be believers but have forsaken the assembly. Essentially what this is saying is that the word for a person who forsakes the gathering is not a backslidden church member. It's L-O-S-T, lost. Because as John would say later on, they went out from us because they were never of us. This isn't a text about losing your salvation. This is a text telling you that if you forsake the assembly of believers, you have shown yourself to have never been part of the people of God. This will be like saying to Christ, I love you, it's just your body I hate. Try that with a friend today. I love you, I just don't ever want to spend time with you. And this is why, friends, we do covenant renewal at RCC. We don't have this picture, we don't want to have this picture of church members that we never actually see walk through our doors. And sadly, that's the reality of many churches today. And so, we're going to love you enough. Listen to me. Listen, I, I know I'm saying some very tough things. But it's because I love you. And it would be unloving of me to not bring to you the force of this text so that you'd still like me when you leave. We say this to you because we love you. And we renew our covenant together because we love you and we love one another. We don't want you to run away from the benefits God has purchased for you in Christ. One being that He has formed for you a family. But also, I want you to hear this just as clearly. This text is not saying that there's no hope for you. Because we worship a God that welcomes home the prodigal. The answer today is not to leave ashamed or angry because you haven't been to church or because you show up late. The answer is to run home to Jesus so you can receive His mercy. He is the dispenser of all mercy. And one word before I move on from this. 
This is not directed towards anyone in particular. It's just something I've seen in the life of the church today. If you're the type of family that misses the gathering regularly because you have a kid that's good at soccer and he has a soccer tournament, or you really like to travel and you have a beach house, or because you prefer to sleep in after long Saturday nights, you are passively teaching your children how unimportant you think this time is. You're telling your roommate that the gathering isn't really that big a deal. You're telling your spouse that God and His people are not a priority for you. And you're telling your other brothers and sisters in the faith that they don't really matter that much to you either. I mean, it makes sense why 90% of kids in youth group today, when they go to college, forsake the church. Because their parents may not have said church doesn't matter with their lips, but they said it with their calendars. Now, there's so much grace here. If you're not coming to the gathering today, if you're watching online because you're protecting an immunosuppressed family member, of course there's understanding for that. There's wisdom there. All I would ask is that you would just be consistent. Don't neglect the gathering, but then go to Five Guys for fries with your friends on the week. And if you can't physically attend, which there's certainly room for, find other ways to remain engaged with your faith family. Or else you're just passively communicating that the church Jesus died for, in your opinion, really wasn't worth dying for. And my, again, my call to you is that it is not too late. Turn back to Christ in repentance and faith. The test of whether you're a Christian is not have you prayed a prayer. The test of whether you're a Christian is do you love the brothers? And do you love the word? This is one of the tests that we know we're part of the people of God. Salvation is not about one prayer. It's about perseverance. And one of the ways you can know if you're persevering is if you come regularly to the gathering with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And as I said, this is a community effort. We want to call one another to these things because we love one another enough to tell each other the truth. Now the command here ends with a call. The verse ends with, in verse 25, for us to do this more and more as we see the final day drawing near. And so until Jesus returns, which is imminent, we lock arms so that we can approach Christ confidently and encourage each other continually. And friends, as we close, left to ourselves, let's be honest, none of us can do these things. We need the work of another. We're going to fail in these commands, just like we failed all of God's commands. And in Christ, we have a brother that so loved his brothers and sisters that he would be willing to drown in his own blood for their good. That's the motivation. That's the power we have to actually live out this kind of example. We look to Christ who has already done this on our behalf. And now we know we've been accepted through him. So we work from his acceptance, not for that acceptance. That frees us then to joyfully obey these commands without any pressure. We just get to walk alongside Him as He leads us. We see in Christ one who has fixed the problem of the relationship between God and man. Where our parents had broken our access to Him, He has fixed that access. And He has not only fixed it, He has fixed our relationship with one another. Where Jew and Gentile could not get along, He has brought them together into one family in the church. And it's not a perfect picture now, but it's pointing to the day when there will be no more strife between brothers and sisters. How awesome is, that, is it that when Jesus came out of the grave after his resurrection, the first thing he said to Mary was, go get my brothers. This is the one to whom we look today. And if you're in this room and you're an unbeliever, Christ stood in the place of sinners that he should face the wrath of God that we should have faced. He stood in their place. He bore their sins. And if you would turn to Him today in repentance and faith, He will not only save you, He will give you full access to God. He will then also give you a family to come around you and encourage you as well. So I want to implore you to turn to Him in repentance and faith.
So brothers and sisters, let's not forsake this incredible privilege we have to draw near to our God, to hold fast to our confession, to love our community, and to commit to our gathering. We are at the cool table, and we will be for eternity. A bunch of outcasts, a bunch of misfits, sitting with the Father. And as we prepare to turn to the Lord's table in a moment, I just want to give you a moment to examine yourself. To look at this text and just wrestle with it with the Lord. If you're not a Christian, now is the time to turn to Christ. If you're a Christian that's living in rebellion, not obeying the truths of this text, actively choosing to remain distant from a church family, spend some time now with the Lord repenting and join a local church. It doesn't need to be our church. It could be any gospel-preaching, Bible-preaching church. Just join one. And if you are interested in, in joining a, our church, on your seat there's a connection card. During this time of response, you can just write on your card, membership. And we will have someone follow up with you on the details of the membership process. And during this time of response, you can even take that connection card after you write membership on it and just put it at one of those tables on the baskets on the side or in the back. And we'd love to help you take that next step. And if you're a Christian here that is a member of our church currently, we take a time every year to renew that covenant commitment. And so we're going to ask you to do that now. Look at the covenant. Remember what you have committed with your brothers and sisters. And take this time during this next song to look at the covenant and then sign the covenant renewal and also place that in the baskets during this next song. And if you're not ready, if you want to pray over this and take some time, that's okay. You can take this home with you and sign it and bring it back next week. Uh, we, we are all for taking time to consider what you're committing to. So everyone has work to do with the Lord right now. Let's talk to Him about how we're interacting with our family and thank Him for what, the grace we've received in Christ. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find another message or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.